Good evening. Welcome to Tom's World Language Cafe, coming to you live from Fishers, Indiana. It is uh, 7.40 in Fishers, and we have a couple of special guests today coming to us all the way from the state of Washington. <clears throat> Not the capital city, the state of Washington, which is a long way from Indianapolis, Indiana, which is where I'm near. So, at any rate, uh, welcome to all the listeners. Thank you for being here to listen to the show. And would like you to invi- invite you to subscribe to uh, my Apple podcast, Tom World's Lang- World Language Cafe. To do that, you can uh, do a Google search and look up uh, Tom's World Language Cafe and subscribe there uh, in, and uh, take time to do that. And then you get all the shows that uh, come to your email uh, when, when we do a show. And right now, we are us- usually we're trying to do at least one show a month. And uh, this month uh, of June, which is almost over, we have these two special guests who are experts on the travel industry in travel and uh, really renowned people because uh, I don't know many people in this country that give as much of themselves as these two people do to help young people travel all over the world. So we're very um, honored to have them as our guests tonight. Um, and those two people, one of them is um, uh, Michael Edelstein, and Michael is from World Strides and uh, the Travel Group, and and he also is with Karen, and Karen uh, is with us, and she is uh, really Michael's right hand a lot. She does a lot of things to help Michael, and they travel a lot, and uh, just an outstanding, great, great representative uh, uh, for young people uh, to look up to as well as Michael. Uh, so what would you like to say to start off? Uh, Michael, Miguel, I call Michael Miguel, and Michael always wants to practice Spanish, and he loves talking Espanol. He said he was going to do the whole interview tonight in Spanish. But uh, no, she, oye, que entiende mucho, eh? And Karen's really getting good, too. She's better in French. I think she's a French expert. So, uh, Miguel, where were you born? Can you tell the listeners where were you born? That's a good starter. I was born uh, on the campus of Stanford University in uh, California, actually at the hospital in Redwood City, California, where there aren't any Redwoods left over anymore. And uh, I remember that you told me, if I'm correct on this, I believe your dad was a professor, correct? At, at um, what school was he at? Uh, he, would, he got his uh, PhD at Stanford, but he taught at Roger College in New York and Brandeis University in Massachusetts mostly. Brandeis mostly, right? But he got his doctorate at Stanford. So you were born in Stanford, not a bad place to be born, right? And you kind of inherited all that intelligence, right? That, that there is lurking at that university. They a lot of smart pass people. it along to me, but I sucked up as much <laughs> as I could that fell off on the side of the road. And... Karen, can you tell the listeners where you're from? This is really interesting. I can. I was born and grew up in New Zealand. And uh, my dad was a farmer for a lot of years. We could never afford a farm, so at one point we ended up uh, buying a house in town and moving into town. And my mother was a stay-at-home mother, and I have one sister. What was the town? Had a cool name, didn't it? The one I was born in? Yeah. Martinborough. How, 
the farm was like Tucker. Oh, the farm that I mostly grew up on was called Copacori. How did you say farm? Farm. 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 That's farm, right? In New Zealand. Farm. All right. Don't you say I'm already an expert. That's good. So, life down on the farm. All right. So, at any rate, um, can you tell the listeners a little bit, Karen, about the the current president of New Zealand and the great things uh, she's done for the country? She's done a lot of nice things, right? Yes, we have a wonderful prime minister. Her name's Jacinda Ardern, and uh, uh, she's been instrumental in keeping COVID under control there. Mostly we don't have any cases at the moment, maybe a few, but not many anymore. Uh, it's a country of about 5 million people and in the southern hemisphere, so they're heading into winter now, whereas we're in summer here. And she also did something special about uh, eliminating uh, guns, right? Didn't, didn't, wasn't she able to do something where she had the yes. people turn in their automatic weapons? Yes, we had a, a, a horrible mosque shooting in New Zealand a few years ago in, in the city of Christchurch, and uh, she changed the gun laws immediately. Mm -hmm. And most of the police force, especially when I was growing up, didn't even carry guns. So uh, the gun culture in the U.S. is quite an adjustment for me. <laughs> for sure. Um, what about um, your educations? Uh, Miguel, you went to what? You went to, did you go to Stanford? You did, right? Uh, yeah, so I uh, went to high school in Wellesley, Massachusetts, uh, college in upstate New York at a place nobody knew until the, the play Hamilton came out, Hamilton College, uh, suddenly hit the charts. Um, and then I went to Stanford University for a master's in education. And then, and then I got certified to teach uh, at UMass Amherst and did my student teaching at the Taos Indian Reservation in New Mexico, wow. where I learned a lot. And then what did you teach in English? Uh, I was certified to teach grades one to six, all subjects. But all most subjects. of my career I taught seventh and eighth grade uh, in a small K-8 to public school in Marlboro, Vermont. Okay. And then Karen... Um, your education then was it in New Zealand? It was. Uh, I basically went through high school in New Zealand and then I went into the work workforce as a secretary. Um, I took shorthand typing in high school, which qualified me enough that I didn't need to go to college for that. So that's about the sum of my education right there. So... <laughs> Ask her when women got the vote in New Zealand. When did women get the vote? Uh, in the 18, 1890s in New Zealand, we were the first country in the world to give women the vote. So. Is that right? Well, okay. That's wonderful. Yeah. Isn't that nice? That's something to be proud of. That really is. That's, that's astounding. Um, tell us some things about um, uh, New Zealand. What do you... What, what's something special about New Zealand that you'd like to tell us? Uh, well, Why all would, of it. <laughs> if, you, if you could sum this up. <laughs> we don't have any squirrels. No snakes, no squirrels. No poison oak, no poison ivy. No poison oak, no poison <laughs> ivy, okay. Everything poison got shipped um, to Australia. 
great food. Um, New Zealand is very, very family-minded, so a lot of the towns and cities during the week will close down in the evening. And so if you're from the US and you visit, if you're planning to go out and do stuff in the evening, <laughs> rethink it or go earlier because um, things shut down because families, you know, have time together in the evenings. Um, oh, what else? Sir Edmund Hillary and... Uh, Tenzing Norgay were actually the first people to summit Mount Everest. Uh, Sir Edmund Hillary is a famous New Zealander. Now, what about the food? What's the top food? If I were there, what would you recommend the best thing I could eat if I were in New Zealand? Uh, well, a big meal, if you went to someone's house, say for a dinner, they would probably serve you roast lamb with mint wow. sauce and Yorkshire pudding and mashed potatoes oh, and veggies. Wow. And then the New Zealand dessert, although Australians will dispute this, is pavlova. And it's a, basically a giant meringue that you um, serve with whipped cream and then top with fruit. But Australians debate that they were the ones that came up with it, but it's a well-known fact that it was actually Boy, yes, good. Yes, very <laughs> nice. No rivalry there. No. So, well, that certainly sounds like a great place to visit. Now, especially, it's, it's extremely beautiful, right? I mean, I've seen pictures of it and videos, but it looks to be really a beautiful, beautiful country. It is. Um, a lot of open spaces and protected national park areas and, uh, yes, a wonderful place to visit. have a lot of geothermal activity in the central North Island, so that's great. Mm -hmm. Lots of, most people are within an hour or so of the beach. So. Any special things you want to tell me about your families? Anything special? Anything? Anything you want to say? How many sheep were on the farm your dad helped manage when you were growing up? Oh, okay. 10,000? No, probably more. Way more. More than 10,000 sheep? Wow. That yeah. must Was it fun? It must have been fun, was it, I guess? Well, it was. Um, Hard work, though. Sometimes uh, we would go out with my dad and help with the sheep and rounding them up. He had dogs that would round up the sheep and, you know, move them across the road or things like that. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun growing up on the farm. I bet so. I was walking barefoot to school. Yes, a lot of kids in New Zealand uh, go to school barefoot. That's incredible. Yeah, that's all. What? <laughs> and uh, walk across sheep paddocks to get there sometimes. Now, do you go, usually go back once or twice a year, right? Uh, once a year, usually. Uh, yeah, it varies. Um, I had children growing up and didn't always get back every year, but the desire is always to get back every year. Now, uh, yep, drag her back afterwards. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about travel and uh, what, you, what you guys do uh, to help World Strides, and you certainly do a huge amount, and I don't know how you do it all. I know you're very busy all the time, and you're used to traveling day and night, and, um, but all of a sudden, with the COVID uh, situation, with the COVID, we are all stuck, right? We're kind of in, 
I, I don't know what you would call it in in uh, uh, semi movement, right? For traveling, right? We're we're kind of hindered quite right, right now. What positivity can you offer? Uh, you guys can tell talk about for the teachers listening, the students that. Uh, might make everybody go, oh, you know, this isn't so bad, right? Because I know you guys are two of the most positive people I know. And uh, what what would you say about that? What is the positive thing to get out of all this? Um, we probably both have a bunch of thoughts on that. I know for me, my life, I did not travel in high school, did not travel in college. Went on my first trip, was which was to Kenya in East Africa, and then... Still, I mean the same like Swahili Kidogo Sana. I still speak a little Swahili, and changed my whole view of the world. I mean, and that's a funny thing to say, right? It sounds cliche, but I never saw the world in the same way again after that trip. And I even came home, and I remember just looking around the United States of America, stunned at the things I saw that were invisible to me before. I know you often bring up, well, what should you look at, look for in countries that you visit. And part of it is just keeping your eyes open and being aware. Um, then I started teaching school, and I took kids abroad, and some of them changed so dynamically in those trips that I ended up working here with NETC, which became the international group of World Strides. And now it's thousands of high school kids. And even recently, I had a teacher who was just checking out, you know, should I work with you guys? And in the middle of the conversation, we figured out, she's from Evansville, Indiana, originally teaching in Warsaw, that she went on a trip with us in high school, and that's part of why she became a German teacher. And uh, that trip changed her so much. So I think COVID or no COVID, when that time comes, not only will many people feel bottled up and ready to go, but almost more important that we keep that world situation open and some people say, well, travel is one way the disease spread, but if you think back to the Spanish flu, it spread around the world in a much more primitive time of travel and killed what they estimate 20 million people and with no vaccines came and went. So there will come a time, sooner than later, I hope, where travel returns. And I think that open-mindedness and the ability to see the world in new ways will be probably even more important can- at that can you tell the listeners about, you told me uh, last time we talked on the phone, you were talking about, uh, we were talking about this, and you brought up this idea of the dream and dreaming now. I just think that is so neat because uh, uh, it's something everybody can uh, keep as their goal, maybe, to, to make this well, dream. When I was in high school, I always dreamed of going abroad. I thought it would be for other kids now. Um, my dad was an underpaid college professor, and so, um, but I think having that dream and having those goals out there and knowing that you, because if you think about it, I say this when I visit a classroom of students, your generation will be able to live, work, study, and travel abroad more than any human beings that have ever existed on the planet before. Doesn't mean you will, but you can, and to not take it advantage of that incredible chance you look at you colombia and all the connections you've made since then in cuba and mexico and spain um so uh, i tracked down somebody who put me up for a few days in tanzania in 1980 
Wow. Uh, four, 1984. So I'm hoping to go see Charles uh, when this all lets up. So, yeah, that um, this idea the the for the young people, especially at this time, the, to to think about that though, right? To dream that you're going to be able to do this, and uh, it's going to change your life. The, this idea of traveling, and it, <clears throat> we aren't at the end of travel really, and it will come back stronger than it's ever been, as, as, as I'm sure it will, and uh, and very soon, very likely this spring. Maybe uh, people will take it for granted less too. I think you know. Yes. Tony Mitchell said, "You don't know what you got till it's gone." And Absolutely. You know, I I'm suffering thinking about the places I still want to visit while I'm alive. Um, and and, and it, the it, list yeah. still, I, I want to get going. <laughs> so, but uh, Karen, what do you think? Any the positivity from this, the COVID? Uh, well, I think everywhere is a destination, including your own home. <laughs> so for me, I've been using this time to catch up on things that I've, you know, sort of put off because I've been too busy to get to them otherwise and uh, looking at it as an opportunity to slow down and, you know, we need to be patient and get through this time and look forward to travel opening up again when it's the right time to do it. So this uh, idea of, yes, of, of taking time, slowing down, and as Michael said, too, appreciating what we have in this country, that uh, now that we're, we're having to slow down a bit, and we're, but it gives us time to reflect a little bit about what we're fortunate to have, right? And to think of uh, the great things that, um, that we're able to do in this country travel-wise that many people can't do. And uh, I know, Michael, how many, I don't know how many students you travel with per year, but what do you, how many people do you take on trips in a, in a given year that you're involved in directly <laughs> or indirectly? Helping teachers prepare trips and enroll trips. And a lot of it is based on sharing suggestions that other teachers find successful. Um, one that I talked to on the phone recently that I had a teacher who, wasn't sure that people were still interested in travel, but eight spots opened up when her trip was postponed from 2020 to 2021. And she put the word out and filled the eight spots. And then the next week, two teachers said to me, wow, out of the blue, I've got people asking me about the trip. Remind me how to get them enrolled. So, so there is interest out there that's uh, brewing. So we work with that. And I would estimate I work between with between 50 and 100 groups a year on trips, and we start planning early, um, partly because more kids on the cusp of being able to afford to go. And I love kids who've already traveled, and I love it when we get to take them abroad. But we do a very special kind of trip. And the beauty is when you preach to the unconverted, the kid who never thought they would be able to go abroad, and you see the transformation in them. I would guess um, between the two of us, we end up helping over a thousand kids a year get onto trips and go through the process. Um, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Um, and and sometimes parents realize that the value of education and educational travel is greater. And then when there's not a recession, they have greater ability to pay for that. So in a way, it, it rides the waves of up and down of the economy quite well because of its 
value, much like the value of learning mm-hmm. uh, other languages in the field that you're in. Um, so, Karen, do you have anything to add there you want to? No, I think Michael covered that pretty well. Yes, he did. Here's a little observation, and I would tell the listeners this. Uh, Many of them may not know this. Some of them may, but but I suspect more don't know this than know this. But uh, I've been around Michael and Karen, and I see them a lot during the, the school year at conferences, and they come through Indiana, and we usually hook up and, and for a while. And they travel, though. And it isn't just people think that you just go out and everybody's ready to go on a trip. And uh, Michael has to go to schools. He talks to teachers. He takes time to do that. Karen goes, and they visit teachers at, in the schools. And they're very, very uh, thorough with their planning. And I've seen seen them do this and helping the teacher and the students organize trips. I've never seen anybody in this, in this travel uh, profession and in all the years, I, and that's quite a few that I've been in teaching, that work as hard as Michael and Karen do at, at helping people go on these trips. And uh, they just go out of their way. They're always going out of their way. They visit the schools. They visit and talk to parents. And... Uh, I, I think we're very blessed in, in our language profession to have people like Michael and Karen helping out and taking students um, and uh, getting students ready to travel because it does make the job of the language teachers a lot easier. And number two, it gives the language teachers a chance to practice and go and improve their Spanish abilities and their knowledge of culture uh, in the countries. And that's another thing we forget about sometimes. And I was going to ask, uh, my next question is uh, going to be about um, how does this, um, what do you guys think that this um, travel, how does it impact a world language, studying language? It, it has, a, there's a special place, right? For, for just, you must get a tremendous enjoyment out of seeing uh, the teachers on the trips and the students when they're, they're able to use language and practice and learn about culture, right? But is there something beyond that that motivates you, or is that, do you have? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that I, I was offered a trip in high school in Wellesley, Massachusetts, in the 1970s, um, propeller planes, okay. And, um, no, they had jets then, but not a lot of them. And... I didn't go on that trip. I didn't go because I didn't take the information home. I had a single dad. He seemed to be working a lot. And 20 years later, after teaching, taking kids abroad, becoming a travel addict, I ran the idea by him. And he said, oh, I wish you told me I would have sent you. And I think my greatest regret is I sat in French classes for six years, and I cannot function in French. I can say a few phrases. I can stumble through a few things. If I had gone on that trip, I would be bilingual. And you know... I know you know this. If you're bilingual, then trilingual comes next and easily. So I would be, I think, I would be up to about four or five languages now, including Spanish, French, English, of course, Swahili. Uh, Who knows what else? Because the brain, once you start packing those languages, we have colleagues who speak eight to 12 languages functionally, fluently. It's astounding. And And students, to see them... Um, you know, to say, I, I spoke to them, they understood me, 
I understood them. I think it's a magical moment for a student. It is. It's, it, there's nothing like it for any human being, adult, uh, student. There's nothing like being in another culture and speaking another language. It's, it's like being two people, right? It really is. It, it gives you another uh, persona. Um, Karen, what about um, the five favorite places to visit? Do you have five favorite places or a couple well, New Zealand always tops my list. <laughs> For everybody but, uh, listening now, you listeners, enjoy, go to I New really Zealand. Okay. Turkey. Turkey, yes. And Cuba. Cuba was great. Uh, Costa Rica, Scotland, because uh, my roots trace back to there. So uh, it was fascinating to be there. And, and, and just uh, my son visited Scotland once and said, these are my people, you know, they have the same build as me, the same look as me. And, uh, and uh, also the Galapagos was really great. And uh, I don't know, I could go on. Yes. <laughs> the list really endless. Everywhere is great. Yes, everywhere is great. Uh, Miguel, do you have five favorites? Uh, everywhere is great, uh, including your hometown. But I think the one that breaks the ice, like for me, Kenya, that always stays at the top of the list. Uh, Nepal, but then as my interest grew in Spanish, uh, a language that just feels more comfortable to me than most others. So there is Spain. I never wanted to go to Spain. I went to Italy on a project and they switched it over to Spain and I was grumpy until I got there. And wow, I just was like, wow, wow, this place is wow. Yes, it is. Yes. Plus, chocolate in the world. It's a personal opinion, but you can go and try Chocolate Madrieno. Anybody listening, if you don't yes, believe, yes. you'll you'll discover that there's a whole different version of chocolate that we don't really have here yes. in the United States. I will, I will share everything with Michael, but that. <laughs> Cuba, Peru, of course, and yes. I, I always think it's a marvel that the Incans left this amazing uh, location, Machu Picchu, so for the rest of whatever eternity that that place is visited, Yes, people have inherited this masterpiece that will be uh, on the bucket list and people will make pilgrimages to it and uh, takes your breath away. Ecuador, I could go on. Galapagos and looking face to face with the sea lion that's friendly and grabs your fins. That's uh, I know you you also like you like Brazil a lot, right? Brazil. Uh, Brazil, well, the trouble is I like all those places. You so do. If you get me stirred up, I, I'm at 63, I think it is, countries. Yeah. And uh, I'm a, a jack of all countries and a master of none. So Say, I'm, my, Miguel I'm has, mode. I, I repeat that one. Miguel has visited 63 countries. And it's fun to sit down with Michael and talk because he gets going on these countries and he, and he has some stories that he can talk probably 10 hours, you know, of telling stories. Well, and met a woman at Hertz the other day. She's from Rwanda. I'm like, well, I was there before the the troubles got going there, and met amazing people. And um, I was pretty sure she was from that area from her look. And then we spoke a little Swahili. She, of course, spoke a lot of it, and then I got lost. <laughs> so uh, now the listeners are sitting there thinking, I wonder what I'd do if I could. What would it be like if somebody gave me a couple of packing tips when you travel? Do you guys have any packing tri- tri- uh, tricks that you can uh, I'll get? jump in first. Um, my favorite trip, trip packing tip 
was I stolen from a teacher because you know as teachers we all steal ideas from other teachers of course borrow mm-hmm. there um, and this teacher said before all her trips she would have the kids come to school pack everything they were supposed to have take it to the school track and walk one lap around the track without using the wheels wheels were a new invention of course on bags uh, 30, 40 years ago, and now all the bags have them. And she said they all went home and they packed a lot less. And I know on my one-year trip, my second trip, when I sent most of my things home, I was so much happier. The less you bring, the easy. less book anchor you drag around. Yes, and it's totally easy and easier. Uh, Karen? Yeah, I like to travel with packing cubes because you can get a lot of clothes into them and then zip them up and they fit nicely in your in your case, and uh, also for women, a long skirt's nice to wear on a flight because it's loose-fitting and it can serve as pyjamas, and <laughs> especially if it's a long flight, and scarves are always useful and come in handy. And then uh, the one thing I always travel with is a book of some sort. I always have a book with me. There was, um, it reminds me of, you were talking about what traveling tips, there was a a uh, professor from Indiana University, Dr. Salmon, his name was first name was Russ, and he helped me a lot in Mexico with my uh, teacher programs in San Luis Potosí years back. And Russ always had this jacket on; it was kind of a sport coat-like thing, and he had pockets everywhere in his coat. And we'd get get on the airplane. He'd say, "Tom, you need to have one of these jacket. You need to bring a jacket with lots of pockets." He said, because you know how this is going to be. We're going to get teacher tickets. Everybody's going to give us stuff to put in our pockets, and you don't have enough pockets. <laughs> and it was really interesting. I mean, and I never did do what he said, but I should have, right? Because uh, have you ever done that when you're traveling and you need more pockets? Well, Miguel, you always have your, you kind of have your, uh, what is it, your carry-on type. You carry something, right? Yeah, one other tip I'll jump in with is uh, stolen from the mother of a friend of mine to bring old clothes and to wear them and then to leave them behind, especially yes. uh, last stop for socks and underwear. And then if you go to a place like Costa Rica where you get quite muddy, you can dispose of those and that makes space for souvenirs you bring home. So it's a great way to do that. Or if sometimes if you have something that, you know, athletic shoes that they might not have a lot of in a certain location, you can leave them behind. Um, and make people quite happy and still lighten your load for souvenirs on the way back. As you said before, we're so lucky here and sometimes we don't realize we have so many things. So you're out traveling. Let's say you're in, uh, you're in Madrid in, in España and you're, tra- you're traveling and you're trying to pick a good place to eat while you're traveling in, in Madrid. And what, how would you go about that? Well, you have to remember, we work with World Strides, and so one of the things that I did a few years ago is I traded away a raise, and we both go on a trip a year normally, not this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and they take us to restaurants and the great thing, and, and uh, soy vegetariano, I'm vegetarian, I can say languages. So the wonder there is you don't know what you're getting, and that's part of the exploration is not to jump into your old habits, but to explore foods from other cultures. And so the... Luckily, they've sussed out those restaurants. For me, I'm always looking for something that's cultural and interesting because I can come home and have the things that are my favorites after right, we're back. Right, right. Uh, Karen, do you have any 
Well, when it's just Michael and, and uh, me, we um, tend to be casual diners and just we'll just walk along a street or something and say, hey, this place looks interesting or fun or good, and, and we'll try it. So, but, uh, so I think that's a personal thing, how, how much you want to spend and what kind of food you want to eat. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and you know, go ahead. There's fine dining all the way you know, down to casual or fast food. So. World Strides tends to hit the middle, but I also find that some people go cheap and then you don't eat the culture. And I think eating the culture is part of the adventure. And that's, um, and if, you know, if you're not a vegetarian, then there's so many tapas specialties like squid and octopus in Spain, or uh, luckily chocolate is vegetarian in Spain, (laughs) and so on and so forth. So there's lots of interesting things out there uh, to be had. Now, so. Do you have any tips for um, our listeners about cultural th- things, items, topics that you could uh, observe while you're traveling? There are, what things do you like to observe that really give you insights into culture, how the people live? Uh, two things we like to do. One is go into a grocery store and just walk the aisles and see what sorts of things the local people are buying. Also, for me, uh, washing, seeing how people do their washing in a neighbourhood of that and uh, just getting off the beaten path, not just walking all the tour routes but maybe taking some side streets and getting lost a little bit and Which, just that's walking the, where the locals walk. That's the real fun of it, isn't it? That's one it of, is, I mean, yes. Jill, Jill and I do that as well. We like to go get lost and we'll be walking around and we get lost and... But, you try to go right where, like you said, where where all the tourists don't usually go, right? And you just kind of find those little nooks and places. And yeah, Miguel, would you have anything there to add to that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'll I'll use it as an analogy. World Strides does this activity going into the Louvre Museum in Paris. How to look at art? So they'll prepare the group before they go in how to look at art. The average person goes in and they just look at the Mona Lisa and they don't even look at the paintings near the Mona Lisa. And I think we have that habit on the streets. I remember being in Rome and having to walk to meet a group. And every, like, 30 steps, I'd see something amazing that wasn't on the famous items list. But so many people will go take a picture, and and I urge anybody who's listening, make sure you look at the thing you take the picture of because it's so easy to take the picture, which you could look up on the Internet without going to the place, and not stop and take the time to look. And sometimes investigate. There's a famous picture where people make fun of students in a museum in Europe who are on their phones. But it's not always easy to know. I've been with a group of students where they got inspired by a painting and they went on their phones to look up information about the artist, to find out the history of the painting. Yes. Uh, you know, so there are different layers of things you can see, but you do have to have the open eyes. So say, taking a picture then you're saying enjoy, enjoy the picture. I mean, the, the whatever you're taking a picture of, right? If it's a monument, whatever it is, or it's some people in the street, whatever, but to enjoy the scene itself, right, without worrying. Make sure there's your mind, not just your camera. So you have to really think about the, what you're doing, right? Not just taking the picture, right? 
We, we, even the best of us, and I like to think I'm good at this, you'll catch yourself taking the picture and starting to walk away. Yes. No, no, no. You've got to take the look. Really look. And you sometimes what you see is so great, astounding. Great tip. Yes, that, that is really good. Karen? Do you have a tip from Michael? Is, uh, there's a saying, you're so connected, you're not even there. So it's making sure that you know, if you're in Europe, be in Europe. Don't keep connecting back to the U.S. Yes, or, yes. Or those things. Be present where you are in the moment because that moment will come and go and you'll soon be back in the U.S. and, you know, you will only have your photos then. <laughs> yeah. I can share stories then, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, that, a couple of things that the, uh, we always talk about on our, our summer programs for the teachers is... Uh, also to um, to listen to right listen yeah. listen mm-hmm. and then and watch and observe and and as you said forget you're here I mean that you're not in your old place you're in a new place with all new things and and enjoy the moments right because they're really every if you enjoy every moment then every second that you're on that on those trips and you guys I'm sure do that uh, it's fascinating for the kids right. And the teachers. Well, I, I always hate to think somebody saves up for a year, a year and a half. Yes. They spend a lot of money, they get to a place, and they leave their mind at home. Yeah. And that, that's just such a shame. Right, but right. It's like Karen said, you'll get back home. And that's the best time to share your stories, not online every night, I don't think. That's a personal view. Yes, yes. Or don't don't be on your phone, right? And and maybe texting back and forth with people, uh, you know, in, in, in your home country and waste time. I, I've noticed sometimes uh, that people get carried away with their phones sometimes, you know, that they'll uh, spend too much time texting and this and that and not really, and they miss things when they're, when they're walking and when you're out and about. So, you know, that is the interesting thing. Um, what... Yeah. Well, just one thing before you go on. So think about the painting you probably taught a lot in your classroom, Las Meninas. Yes. If you come and glance at that and take a picture, yeah, that's okay. But if you stop and look at that painting, it has so many layers. It's yes. what makes the painting fascinating, right? Yeah, you can't do layers now, but if anybody's curious, they can go look it up. And, yes. Uh, you can't, you can't, layers. you're right. You have to really look at that painting a long time. That, that painting is one of... One of the, the great paintings in the world, that, that beautiful painting. Um, that by, it's one of my favorite painters, uh, Velázquez, and it's really, really magnificent. And to think that, that he created that painting by dipping a brush into paint. Yes. And putting it onto a canvas, and a whole different thing comes out of it. We do an activity on the trip where we call Cover the Canvas, where kids meet with an art person, and they talk about how you do painting, and they paint little canvases. And I find that students go into the museum and they see a painting differently when they've just done one. A lot of kids uh-huh. don't come in with art experience. Some do. But even to have it fresh in their mind, how hard it is to create yes. what you're hoping for, and then to look at Las Meninas or any of the other <laughs> paintings from across the world, yes. not just Europe, um, it's incredible what comes I, out of those dabs. I, I know another nice thing that, uh, that your company does, and we do it on our on our summer programs uh, is we go to the cooking school in Madrid, you know, the cooking school and the, the teachers <clears throat> get to be there with some real chefs, people who really are good at cooking 
and they learn how to do uh, paella, they learn how to do a tapa, make sangria, and different things, but fascinating thing again, and which is, you know, one of the great things about traveling, when you think that you're able to, you're, you're able to, you're, you're able to see paintings, the world of art, you're able to see dancing in the streets, music everywhere, music, you're able to see the foods of the country, so it, it, it's such a kaleidoscope of, of beautiful things when you travel that you can't do just sitting home. So that's kind of hopefully an ad for everybody to go travel when you get a chance here. So well, one of the things I love by accident, when I came out of the classroom, middle school, interactive, student-centered teaching approach in my school in Marlboro, Vermont, um, you know, I, I started working with a travel organization that had this interactive experiential approach, like you said, the cooking school, and lots of other activities, like... Uh, uh, rethinking of the Normandy landing where the kids take roles, for instance. But I'll, I'll go to the cooking school one. Uh, it, I'm not somebody who loves cooking generally. So I was with a group of teachers at our one of our cooking schools in Europe, in Florence, Italy, and there was a guy there with an American accent, and this, this fascinated me to no end. I said to him, where are you from? And he said, oh, Oregon. I said, wow, I work with schools in Oregon. What town? Eugene. What school? Marist. I said, Oh, you went. I, I worked on that trip. You guys came to this cooking school. You must have come back for the whole program. He was helping with the whole program. And he said to me, no, the other kids went. They came back. They talked about it so much. And he always wanted to go into culinary arts that he found the cooking school and was doing the full program in Florence because of what they brought home, the ripple effect of this trip. That's and amazing. now he's running a food business in Europe. Isn't that something? Yeah. And he didn't even go. I mean, and, and, you know, or there was the football player who came home and didn't say anything about the trip for two weeks. And the teacher at parent teacher meetings said, you know, did he get much out of the trip? And they said, oh, you won't believe it. He went, he went home, he took the debit card from the family, went to the market, bought all the ingredients, had the recipe from the cooking school, made the <laughs> meal for the parents. They were like lumps in their throat, tears in their eyes. And it was an example of that old saying that actions are louder than speak louder than words. That he made the meal. He didn't talk about the trip. He did it right there for them. But wow! That the 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 effect that you guys have had on on teachers and students is huge. And the same with teachers, the effect when they have on the kids when they they travel. But. It's those surprise things that you hear about, right? Like your story, but all of the things that happen. That eventually, you don't know half of what goes on, right? Or a tenth of the effect that that you can have on students uh, when they travel, right? And 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 teachers too. But you know that this idea that uh, the necessity of travel is huge. Um, I years ago. Uh, was used to propose at language conferences and presentations would propose that the government would subsidize student travel and quit making so many bombs and put some of that money into travel for students when they're young and uh, and try to bring out some international uh, communication between the countries and the peace etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, and I, I hope sometime, and I don't know if I'll ever be around to see that, but I do hope someday that everybody has to travel. You know, that the students, part of their four years in high school might be a summer abroad, 
part of the college experience will be at least a year abroad to, to, to bring about some uh, international um, uh, learning uh, situations. Uh, you know, but, it's a great idea, and if I could rewind life, I would go on a trip before I finished high school because yes. I think any student gets more out of high school and more out of college, even if it's just a week away, to see what's out there in the world and the opportunities yes. that they get job. And you appreciate what you have here, right? That it really helps us here, uh, you know, when you come back and you appreciate many things here, you appreciate other cultures when you're there, and... Uh, you can see that we're all human beings, right? That we're all in this life uh, trying to do well. Everybody, every day, wants to do well and, and have a good life. So uh, that, that's invaluable experience. Um, now, here's a question for you, both of you. Um, what is the funniest thing that you ever uh, have seen traveling? A funny episode. Karen. Well, Michael and I were in Cordoba once and we were going to take a train to Madrid, a fast train, and we hop on the train platform and we're waiting and it's about the time our train's to leave and a train comes in and we hop on. Says Madrid on the front. Says Madrid, we're all set, we're excited, this is going to be a fast train ride to Madrid. And uh, we go to sit in our seat and there's another person there and he says, no, this is our seat. And he pulls out his ticket and he shows us and says, you know, Darn it, he's correct. we're on the wrong train. And we're like, Which well, is already going now. Well, that can't be, you know. So we find the porter and he um, looks at our ticket and he says, yes, we are actually on the wrong train. What happened was this train was running late and arrived at the station around the time our train was originally meant to be leaving as well. So, anyway, he found us a seat, and um, so we're travelling to Madrid, and Michael's grumbling the whole way about how we're not on the fast train. I always wanted to try that fast train, not the Ave, but the next one down. I can't think of the name. You know, it's not cool, it's not fun, it's going to take us forever to get to Madrid. Well, next minute, you know, we're in Madrid, and it turns out it was a fast train. <laughs> and I didn't enjoy a bit of it because I was so bummed thinking that I'd gotten, we'd gotten on the wrong train. It turned out it was. It was the wrong train, but it was still a fast train. <laughs> it still train. was fast. So, uh, actually, what happened was we were sitting there an hour and a half after getting on, and everybody started getting off. The slow train takes about four hours to Madrid. And uh, I thought, well, something's wrong. Why are we all getting off? And it's like, well, because you arrived in Madrid. <laughs> so lesson learned. Enjoy the ride regardless. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, we got, do you have one funny? Well, that was mine too. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I could probably tell you a hundred, but um, uh, I remember... Uh, on my second trip, I was in the Himalayas. I found these two guys, and we were hiking um, up to a ridge at about 16,000 feet in a snowfield. We had rented boots and jackets and everything. And as we came up to the 16,000 feet, walking 10 steps and then resting because of the high altitude, we met a group coming up, and they had two Americans, a guide, and two porters 
Sounds like the start of a joke. <laughs> they, were, they had just come up the mountain. The porters were carrying most of the weight for everybody. And they had just come up the face of a glacier. Here we are, grumpy. And the porters are wearing thin pants, uh, wool sweater, Converse high-top shoes, and, um, and are smiling because they're so thrilled to see somebody up there on the mountain. And I just thought, you know, sometimes life's just so funny, and then the rest of the hike seemed amazing and easy. That is. That's good. Now, so the longest flight you've ever have taken, Miguel, what was that? Well, thanks to you, I looked it up today. 8,090 miles from San Francisco to Dubai on the way to Ethiopia. How many? Six hours how, with Emirates Airlines. How many, how many hours? 16. Whoa. I think we got there 15 minutes early, so it was 15 minutes. 15 hours and 45 minutes, I think, was what it ended up being. Now, Karen, what did? What about you? Uh, I've taken lots of long flights, and well, it's about 12 hours 40 to New Zealand and that, and done a lot of that distance. But the longest flights was when we flew from India to London. That was about 12 or 13 hours. And then London to Los Angeles, which was another 12 to 13 hours, and then Los Angeles to Portland, Oregon. Was that and, all? Uh, we, was that we did all? those back to back. Oh. It was about an hour between the flight oh, and dear. London. How did? And, you... uh, we landed in LA, and the flight to Portland was the one that was delayed. And <laughs> oh, so it was funny did... at the very end. We were so tired. So, what tips do you have for the listeners on how to survive a long trip? Do you have any tips? Uh, one is, well, any long flights, I'll always take a baby aspirin mm -hmm. uh, and then try and move. Even if you're in your seat, move your legs, uh, you know. Do you, you ever take Dramamine or something to get dosed, uh, a little sleepy? Or then I know some people, they'll get a tranquilizer or they get their doctor to give them the tranquilizers and couple of them when they go to sleep and they get they take one and go to sleep not a big medication person and whenever i do no. something like that it doesn't work i've also <laughs> tried staying up all night before a flight and then i didn't sleep on the flight and then I, I was a zombie <laughs> for three days um so uh, I, I i've tried that too I've, I've tried to take a tablet or something of, of i tried dramamine last time we went to madrid and I, was, I tried dramamine and i got all wound up i couldn't sleep <laughs> And it was worse than if I just had a, it had the opposite effect, I think. So strangely enough, I think it's it, it's a personal thing. I do think if you can figure out a way to get comfortable with a pillow of some kind or a head wrap or um, good eye cover or good earplugs, um, and those are all really much more available now than when I started traveling in 1980. Yes, there's a lot more things to keep us occupied, right? And then, do you wear do you, better earplugs, better eye shades? Do you do you wear your air, your AirPod things when you travel? Your um, no, I'm always worried they'll fall out and roll under a seat. So I wear actual earplugs with a string that hooks them together, so that if one falls out, oh, travel tip. Yeah. Well, that's good. I always usually when I take my AirPods, one of them will fall down the aisle. And then luckily, I found them. I've done it twice. Traveling, well, I've lost. I have one. to get one replaced tomorrow, ironically. So let's not talk about this. Yeah. Is that is that <laughs> the new AirPod or the old AirPod? Uh, 
it's uh, base AirPods Generation Two. Okay. Uh, one I, of them fell out somewhere, and <laughs> hours of looking later, it's uh, needs a replacement. Uh, I've always wondered. I've noticed in the the COVID crisis, the news people at night when they all are they're sheltering in, and they don't come to the studio, and they have their AirPods on. I keep thinking one of them's going to fall out one of these nights. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen one fall yet. They must be improving those, you know. Karen can run with them. You run with them. Whoa. I do. They're, they're one of the only ones I've found that don't fall out when you run. They're That's great. amazing. And have wires or cords. Or... <laughs> I could run with them, but I sweat and I don't want to wreck them that way. It so. could be I don't run that fast, though. <laughs> Now, so how many years have you worked in the travel industry, Miguel, more or less? Well, two things. One is uh, I always think it's funny to call it the travel industry. Like, would Harvard call themselves the university industry? Would Tom Alsop, with his amazing books, call himself the education industry? Well, what, what, the travel, what, what, what do you want I'll to call it the travel world for today. I, I like I that. All right. I, that is good. All my colleagues call it the travel industry. But no, I but travel world, it. I like that. That's good. A well, little bit, uh, you know, like for the said, listeners, ever say they were the education but, industry. So, um, and everybody, that's good. The travel world, okay. I, my college professor at Stanford, when I got my master's in education, Elliot Eisner, used to say, if you build the, uh, schools, to look like factories shouldn't be surprised if people don't seem to want to rush in there yes exactly that's a good point um you know i remember walking into bloomington south high school in indiana and looking at the statues in the main entry and thinking this is a really cool school wow <laughs> um and it still is i've been in the classrooms yes anyway um i this is my 25th year uh i took a year off teaching i thought to do this and i got hooked and i saw the impact on students, and I heard what teachers said, because teachers, as you surely know, are like some of the hardest-working individuals out there, which yes. is why we like to be in the forefront of working with them uh, to make their lives easier and to help with communication with parents and students. And I'm glad you brought that up, too, and we need to, to, to give a good, um, put a lot of good words in for the teachers who have dealt with the COVID-19 crisis in a beautiful way, and they, I'm sure they'll carry on in the fall even better than they did in the spring, and uh, with whatever they have to do with the, with the students. And we certainly want to congratulate the teachers for all the great work they've been doing in the COVID nineteen. Teaching yeah. is my favorite job. I love that Karen taught as well, um, and uh, but I've never worked so hard in my life. Um, <laughs> Free time was slim. I always felt like if you had a couple more hours in the day, I could do more for those students that I really wish. And uh, so when I sit here at work and I think, can I make a teacher's life easier and make the trip enrollment more successful, that's that's what my hope is. Now, how do you, how long do you think this COVID-19 will last from what you've re read? I'm sure you guys are in the in the thick of this uh, more than maybe everybody because you know this is your job and the, the travel the travel world is your job and how would you say your, your prediction is that the back uh, when will the vaccine probably be out well predicting the future is dangerous right i mean in right. the middle of pandemic the stock market is in yeah. highs so i thought it would be the other way right uh, 
But I, I guess I have two thoughts. One is I've heard um, information from both Oxford University and from Dr. Fauci that there's a good chance we'll have a vaccine right around the cusp of 2020 becoming 2021. Now, they have to roll out millions, even billions of doses. So um, don't sign me up for that job. That sounds like a lot of doses to me, and it may take a while. The other thing I was thinking about, because um, I know that George W. Bush got interested in the, the 1919 flu, and if you think about that, there was no vaccine, and yet it was horrible, and about 60 million people died worldwide, I think is the number they estimate. No tests, no no nose swabs. Uh, they did wear masks. It took a while, but they got people wearing masks, and uh, the flu lasted about a year and a half before it faded out. Um, so oh, I'm thinking that by 2021, we'll see a wider open world, but um, predicting the future is... Uh, oh, yes, exactly, exactly. Totally correct on that. Um, so um, how long do you think the, the travel world will take to get back to where it was, maybe another year and a half? I think it's going to other. Well, I think the damage to the economy will be one thing. Um, so that that's harder to gauge. I think otherwise, um, travel rebounded recently from being about four percent of what it was a year ago to over twenty percent. So that's that's you good. Know, five times what it was weeks ago, um, and that's still with people nervous about the situation. Right. I think it's going to rebound pretty quickly. I think people are hungry to get out there and get to those places that they had booked or wanted to go to or um, read about or, you know, um, I was heard something on the news today that the art museum in San Antonio, Texas, has more memberships now than they did before because they've created some online projects and now they have members from around the United States who want to come see it because they found it online when they finally had time, like Karen said earlier, to slow down and look around. Well, and, and that's a good point. Uh, and Karen brought that up earlier. Just by stopping and uh, looking at what's around us and, and what's available and all the wonderful things, there's a lot of things that we miss when we're working all the time, right? We're running and, and we don't, a lot of times we miss a lot of things that are there that, or right under our feet that that, um, that we could really take advantage of. I had time to go look at pictures of my first years of teaching, early travel. I know Karen did as well. I thought about places that I came close to that I want to get to, like Cadiz, the very, very old port in the south of Spain. Hadn't thought about it in a while. Fell off my list, but it's back on. Um, um, so slowing down can also increase your appetite instead of decrease it. Now... Uh, Karen, I've heard that uh, someone told me that you have this poem about traveling. I asked uh, Karen or or Michael if they could read a poem that might capture the the beauty of travel. And uh, Karen, I think, has a poem she's going to read. Yes, uh, this is a, a bit tongue and shake. It's by uh, one of my favorite poets, Billy Collins, and the poem is called Consolation. How agreeable it is not to be touring Italy this summer, wandering her cities and ascending her torrid hill towns. 
How much better to cruise these local familiar streets, fully grasping the meaning of every road sign and billboard, and all the sudden hand gestures of my compatriots. There are no abbeys here, no crumbling frescoes or famous domes, and there is no need to memorise a succession of kings or tour the dripping corners of a dungeon. No need to stand around a sarcophagus, see Napoleon's little bed on Elba, or view the bones of a saint under glass. How much better to command the simple precinct of home than be dwarfed by pillar, arch and basilica, why hide my head in phrase books and wrinkled maps? Why feed scenery into a hungry, one-eyed camera, eager to eat the world one monument at a time? Instead of slouching in a cafe, ignorant of the word for ice, I will head down to the coffee shop and the waitress known as Dot. I will slide into the flow of the morning paper, all language barriers down, rivers of idiom running freely, eggs over easy on the way. And after breakfast, I will not have to find someone willing to photograph me with my arm around the owner. I will not puzzle over the bull or record in a journal what I had to eat and how the sun came in the window. It is enough to climb back into the car, as if it were the great car of English itself, and sounding my loud vernacular horn, speed off down a road that will never lead to Rome, not even Bologna. Very nice. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Thank you very, very much. That's a good one, huh? Are you going to, can you send that to me? I can, yes. Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Um, I would like to thank you both very much for being on the show. And I would like to thank you so much for sharing with the listeners all your wonderful experiences, your years involved in traveling with students, teachers, and your travels all over the world to help uh, spread the, the appreciation of culture around the world and learning languages. And I know both of you, uh, you may not know this, but I think you probably do, but we appreciate you very much in the language profession for all that you do for teachers. And uh, we hope that you'll do many, many more years of helping people. So thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure to have both of you, and we're honored that you were able to be on the show. So thank you so much. And you Likewise, got... honored. One favor, Tom. One day I'd like to do your show where I get to interview you. Oh. We'll put, maybe... put that on your list. We'll put it on the list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next one. All right. You. No, Tom also. Well, we'll think about that. All right. We'll think about that. We'll Kent see. State, Columbia, well, Spain, we'll, Cuba. Well, I've well, got a lot of questions for you. For okay. <laughs> All right. Listen, um, thank you again for being on the show. And for all the listeners, uh, we have a, a, another good show coming up very soon uh, with uh, Ana Porras, who t teaches at uh, Southport High School in Indianapolis. She's the chair of the World Language Department there. She's going to tell us how they've been coping with uh, remote uh, learning and how they're going to handle things in the, in the fall there and uh, it's, it, at Southport and share some of her beautiful experiences. After that, uh, the next guest is going to be Luisa Legrado, who was uh, a great, great uh, educator, is recently retired. And it's going to be a lot different uh, type show because I'm going to be interviewing her in a different way uh, as it, and try to go, go through so you can share some of the neat things that she did over her career. But uh, she has recently retired from teaching. So... We're going to talk about that as well. 
Thank you again for being on the show, uh, Miguel and Karen. And uh, we will be in touch soon, and uh, we'll keep in touch as always. And uh, we appreciate, again, all your work. And uh, listeners, thank you for being here to listen and come back and, and listen to the next show. Spread the word and subscribe, right, to this beautiful podcast uh, that's made available by uh, the Apple Corporation. And we want to thank them as well for allowing us to do that. So, um, again, good night uh, from Fishers, Indiana. It's quarter to nine. And where Miguel is, it's quarter to six, right? And you guys, are, you got a ways to go yet. Correcto. Muchas gracias, señor. Hombre, gracias a ustedes. Sí, nos vamos a ver y que descansen, ¿ok? Y muy buenas noches, ¿ok? Bye. Okay, das vidanya. Okay, gracias. Bye. 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 Bye.